you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to go to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, I'm going to finish up kind of my one-off sermons that I've been doing the last three weeks, and then get back into the gospel according to John, and John chapter 10, which is quickly becoming my favorite chapter of the Bible. But for today, we're going to look at the first uh, few verses, verses 1 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. By way of setup, I really want you this morning, if you are church people, you've been around church, you know certain words, if you're visiting, hopefully I can explain these words, but I want to challenge us as a congregation, those of you that say, I'm a Christian and know what that means, to remember your redemption, all of the songs, everything I've been uh, doing for this service has been centered around that, and a little over 2,000 years ago. A very weird-looking guy who ate locusts and honey and wore this leather girdle and camel hair, and he would stand on the shores of the Jordan River in a place called Galilee inside at that time in the first century, an occupied nation called Israel, where they had been looking for a Messiah, and for 400 years, nothing. For millennia, there had been prophets, and the people had come and heard, Thus saith the Lord, and spectacular miracles and unexplained things had happened, and for four centuries, silence. And then out of that, this rugged-looking man that no one would have chosen comes out and says these words. John records them, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want us to look square into the face this morning of the work of Jesus Christ for you. The work that Jesus did for me. The work that Jesus did as Paul prayed for the entire world. You see, John the Baptist was preaching on the shores of that Jordan River, preaching what we call baptism and repentance. He was basically saying to be prepared because Messiah was going to come. After centuries of silence, it was all going to be broken in this trumpet that Jesus would come. If I'm a little worked up, I was reminded this week as I was preparing this, I took out one of the syllabuses I had of both my undergraduate and one of the courses I took in studying Ephesians in my master's degree. And I was taught in homiletics and when I did some things that every time I prepare a sermon, I should do so if it was the last time I might ever preach. That I was to come before you as a group of people, whatever group of people that would be, and have an urgency and a passion and a deep desire to impress upon anyone and everyone of the faith I have in Jesus and wanting to passionately and urgently tell you what he's done for me. And I want you to know that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, if there was ever a message for me to be passionate about, urgent with, this is it. The subject matter is the redemption of mankind. Remember your redemption. We're going to look into the face of something that's pretty big and probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable. And I've learned that in church, everybody has an opinion on, which is the sovereignty of God. The idea, when I use that word, that's a $50 theological word. The idea that we believe God is control of all things, that he sees all things, he's planned all things, he's over all things. Nothing happens outside of God. 
And I'm going to show you that if you look at your passage in Ephesians 1, actually verses 3 to 14 are one long run-on sentence. Paul loved his run-on sentences because this is one long doxology of praise and worship for the Trinity and the blessings we enjoy. So with that as the backdrop, let's look at how Paul writes to these churches at Ephesus. Five to ten years after he's been there, lots has changed. He's now a prisoner. And here's what he writes from prison in Rome. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, how? By the will of God. See, this sovereignty. To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You find it amazing? We don't talk to each other like that very much, do we? He goes on and says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Who has blessed us in Christ with every, not some, not most, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, in vernacular, Paul is saying, before God ever said, let there be light, in Genesis 1.1, he'd already chosen us before the foundation of the world. And here's why he did it. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, why did he do it? In love. Verse 5, he predestined us. Why? For adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, the mystery of his will. Why? According to his purpose, purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, here comes the final. In him, we've obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that... We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now notice, to him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now I don't know about you, but if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. All right? That should excite you. Now, I know that this passage fills you likely with excitement and then makes you just a little bit nervous because you're dealing with this idea of being chosen or elected to salvation before the foundation of the world, and it's hard to conceive. I'm not here because I'm going to make it all make sense. I think that's for God and God alone. How do you do this, let alone resolve all of this majesty in our infinite minds? But I want you to understand, don't be afraid to wrestle with the bigness and greatness of God. The bigness and greatness of God you just sang about, that most of us here would claim to believe in. 
You see, that's the problem. I think that we and the Evangelical Church of Canada the United States maybe have shrunk God down just a little bit too much, and we think we can explain him. You have to be okay with a little bit of that uncomfortable tension in the fact that God is infinite and we are finite. That God can do things and has ways of doing things that are beyond our comprehension, and that makes him God and us not God. But I want you to understand that nothing in your Bible is not without a context. And see, this is the problem when you just read it. And this is why we have to do our hard work and dig into the context. Whenever you get a letter and someone uh, writes to you and you read it, and it's been addressed to you, and it talks to you about your life and things that are happening in your life, but let's say that letter gets uh, redirected in the mail and someone unfortunately just assumes it's theirs and they open it up and read it, it will seem a bit odd because nothing in there is contextually to them. And they need it explained to them. And so you need that as well. Why would Paul write about this, especially as he opens up this letter? Well, you see, in the first century, to those in Ephesus, they would have lived in the constant dread of what was called, very commonly, astral powers. It was believed that the astral powers controlled fate. And when you read the ancient philosophers, the Stoic writer Melanius writes this, they, meaning the Egyptian priests, were the first to see, through their art, how fate depends on the wandering stars. Over the course of many centuries, they assigned with persistent care to each period of time the events connected with it. The day on which someone is born, the kind of life he shall lead, the influence of every hour of the laws of destiny, and the enormous differences made by small motions. From long observation, he went on to say, it was discovered that the stars control the whole world by mysterious laws. That the world itself moves by an external principle and that we can, by reliable signs, recognize the ups and downs of fate. Does that not sound like it could be the opening paragraph of any astrology signs that you'd go read in the newspaper? This is the idea. This was what the Ephesians lived in. The idea that the stars controlled your fate. And so in this same city of of Ephesus, the beautiful cult statue of Artemis was there and depicted the goddess as wearing the signs of the zodiac as a necklace. And that was expressing that as queen of heaven, she had the power to break the bonds of fate. And so this is the tension that this letter is written. God, Paul basically writes to the Ephesians. He says, no, listen, it's not fate. It's not stars. It's not some goddess. It's God who has power to control everything. In fact, he's been doing it from before time even began. Now, let me ask you this. Just stop. Can you imagine what it would have meant to this church in the first century to be reminded and challenged to remember God is in control. Not you. Not the stars. Not a statue. Not a group. God is in control. And can you imagine people here in front of me who claim to be Christians that if we actually started telling our culture that God is in control that God has a plan, and much more, that that plan includes them. What would that do to our families and our neighbors 
and our workplace and our classrooms. God has a plan that includes them, and it's wrapped up in our passage in his love and his justice. But more than that, as we see in our passage, it's wrapped up in the fact that he is the redeemer. Did you notice these words in our passage, 1 to 14? He's the beloved, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's why Paul says, and Paul worships as he writes. He can't help it. He simply bursts into praise simply by telling the Ephesians, listen to me, Artemis can't control your fate. For God, in eternity past, already laid out the plan for this world, and then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who made it happen. And if you looked at verses 11 to 14, he promises to send his Holy Spirit as the guarantee that it will happen. And I don't know about you, but then, praise Jesus, amen? Hello? Praise Jesus, amen? All right, wake up. You you ever think about this? This is what drove David in in Psalm 23, by the way. A psalm that we often quote at funerals, almost exclusively. But do you realize what what Paul is doing? Paul is not writing this at a funeral time. He's writing this as he's living life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And you ever notice how this is David talking about his shepherd, his redeemer. He's rehearsing the power of redemption that he's looking forward to, by the way. Later in Psalm 123, David would say again, search me, O God. And then he says, where can I go that you're not there? And for verses, he says, if I go to the bottom of the sea, you're there. If I went up into the clouds, you're there. And if I went into the deepest mine shaft or mountain, you're there. I can't hide for you. You know me. In fact, wasn't it Jesus who stood on a mountainside at that Sermon on the Mount and looked at his disciples with a gathering crowd listening to him and said, that God knows the hairs of your head? Now think about that. If God takes the time and has the power to know all the hairs of all our heads from all time, shouldn't we be maybe resting on him and not ourselves? Should we be resting on him and not fate? Or, what does my astrology sign say about me today? Or, some of you live life, and you might not believe you do it, but you live life by Murphy's Law, or karma, or luck. But how much should we not but rest on Christ, and not on anything or anyone else? And so, I want us today to focus in verses 6 to 10 on the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. I believe verses 1 and 2 are an introduction, and verses 3 to 5 are God the Father's role, 6 to 10 are God the Son's role, and 11 through 14 are God the Holy Spirit's role. And I want you to see what that God the Father has accomplished something in eternity past, that God the Son has not only accomplished it in the past, but into this present day of August 25th of 2019. To put it another way, like like this, the work of the Father was primarily in planning our salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit is in applying it to individuals. That's what I've read in verses 1 to 14. Jesus' principal work was to achieve salvation, notice, by his redemptive death for us on Calvary's cross. 
And that's why I'm asking you this morning to do what Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to do. He wants this church to remember. I'm not likely going to tell you anything you don't already know. But to remember. Now, why? Why should we be told to remember? Well, I want you to think about the church at Ephesus. Because if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, you'll read about this church at Ephesus. And they had kind of gone off the rails, but in a way that maybe many of us wouldn't expect. They had become the most legalistic church of the seven churches of Asia. They stood for everything and forgot the Savior. They were more about the stand than they were the Savior. And in fact, what often people miss is that it was to this legalistic church, Ephesus, in Revelation chapter 2, the only church that was threatened with either change or I will remove my spirit. I will tell you, folks, find me a group of legalists and you will find dead people. And I say that because I'm a recovering one. I'm not yelling at anybody else. I'm challenging myself. And if you actually look in Revelation chapter 2, the remedy for legalism is not to stop obeying Christ. It's not to stop thinking you need to be holy. The remedy to legalism is to remember your redemption. Remember who saved you and why you've been saved. And so this is what I want to rehearse for us. Notice, number one, we must remember that we are accepted in Christ. That's verse six. Notice the last part of it. The verse ends with, we, he has blessed us in the beloved. That's what he says. We're accepted. The beloved in Scripture, at least according to the Gospels, was almost a synonym for a messianic title. God himself, when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, said this. He said, Jesus is his beloved. This is my beloved son. Hear him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved or begotten. That's the same word for beloved son. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, we are blessed in the beloved. Now, just like Paul prayed, what does that mean? I can say it, and many of you are going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then if I stopped and said, now tell me what it means, you'd go, oh, snap. All right? You got to know what it means. Here's what you need to realize. Back in the Old Testament, Israel was called the beloved of God. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says, as regards the gospel, they, the nation of Israel, are enemies of God, notice, for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of your forefathers. In Romans chapter 1 verse 7, when Paul writes to the Roman saints, he says, to all those in Rome who are the beloved of God and called to be saints. Now, I want you to see the profound ramifications of this. Only Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has the inherent right to the manifold blessings of God, but... Because he came, lived, died, rose again, and ascended, we can now be joint heirs with him, so we also have been given the right to all of that goodness as well. So that means God the Father now loves us as he loves Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a profound level of being accepted. Stop and think about what that means. Remember what it means. John MacArthur says, every Christian is God's beloved child because the Lord Jesus has become our redeemer. You know what I'm finding in my own life? 
the older I get, the more I need to be reminded I'm accepted. We sang about it today. Now, you need to realize how profound this is because there were three requirements for you to be accepted or to have this belovedness. Number one, you had to be related to the one needing redemption. Number two, you had to be able to pay the debt. And number three, you had to be willing to pay the debt. Now, when we get to the Christmas season, I think uh, Brother uh, Matthew is going to be preaching about Ruth as we look at a Christmas family tree of Jesus. That's going to be the theme of our Christmas season. And that's why you have and should read the book of Ruth, because in Ruth, Boaz, who would become her husband, comes along, and he is that kingsman redeemer. And that's because he was related to the person, he was able to pay the debt, and willing to pay the debt. And so Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1 to 14, listen, before the foundation of the world, before God ever said, let there be light, the all-knowing, sovereign Godhead saw and knew what would happen when they created. And then Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, said, I will go and become man. That's Philippians chapter 2. And then Peter tells us that he was perfect and without spot because he goes on to say, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save them which are lost. He was one of us, yet he was spotlessly perfect and he was willing to die and able to die. And that's why the writer of Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus. He's the founder and protector and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, notice, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So listen, you know what? On this last Sunday of August, as you're barreling into the fall, if you know Jesus, you're accepted. I want you to know that. You're accepted. He loves you. But next, Paul wants you to remember, because of that, we are redeemed. How? Through his blood. That's verse 7a. First, I need you to know what redemption is. We are redeemed, all right? That's another $50 word. Because you see, there are six Greek words used in the New Testament related to the idea of redemption. But the word redemption is actually only used 10 times in all the New Testament. Seven are used by Paul, and three times of the ten, 30% of the uses he uses to the Ephesians. And so you need to understand that the idea of redemption means simply to buy or pay a price for something or someone. In the first century, they tell us that there was many as six million slaves that were bought and sold regularly throughout all of the Roman Empire. And if you wanted a loved one to be free, then you had to be able and willing to pay the price for their freedom. And so, for us, we have to admit something. And this is where redemption gets uncomfortable. Because if you need to be redeemed, and we are redeemed, then by virtue of that, you're admitting that at some point you were a slave. A slave to what? Well, let me tell you, to sin. You have been, are presently, or have known slavery to sin. I don't have to convince you that you were born in sin. You didn't learn how to do wrong. You did wrong because you're a sinner. We are depraved. 
We're held captive to our own evil desires and flesh. And you know this if you're going to be honest, because everyone in here will be honest and admit they've experienced evil done to them. I never have to convince someone that something bad has happened to you. Where we get uncomfortable is when we have to admit that we have done evil to others. You see, from legal terms, we are both the perpetrator and the victim. You're both the victim of sin and the perpetrator. No human being is actually, truly, spiritually free. No one is free from their sin or its consequences. That's the moment you were born. You were born in sin. David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 says, the soul who sins will die. The soul who sins will die. Paul said in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. You see, sin is man's slave master or captain. But redemption is God's act through Jesus Christ by which he paid the ransom for sin and that ransom was the blood of Jesus or the death of Christ on a cross and I could keep you all here all morning and day long going back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament showing the temporary but total inability of the sacrifices of animals to take away sin but I believe Peter says it best Peter says knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice this language. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It's almost like Peter and Paul must be preaching the same thing. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope, notice, are in God. Listen, if you're here this morning, redemption is so big and so deep. And that's why Paul says, remember. And you need ways to remember. And I love this one. I read a few weeks ago about this little boy. This one caught me because my grandfather, who died when I was young, spent some time helping me build a ship. And I read about this little boy who built this boat. He created the sail and he fixed it all up and he tarred it and varnished it and he painted it and he took it down to the lake that was near his home and he pushed it in, hoping that it would stay upright and maybe if the wind blew just right, it would sail. And so with all that anticipation, he puts it out in the water and this wisp of breeze filled the little sail and it it bled out and through the ripples along the waves. And suddenly though, before the little boy realized it, the boat was out of his reach. And even though he ran in after it, tried to grab it as fast as he could, he made even more big splashes. And so that just drove the boat away from him. And he watched as as his heart just sank. And he hoped that maybe the breeze would shift and the boat would come sailing back to him. And instead, he watched it go farther and farther until it was gone. And brokenhearted, he went home crying to his mom. And she wanted to know what was wrong. And she said, didn't it work? She thought maybe it sank. And he said, no, it worked too well. And it ran away from me. Months later, the little fellow was in the downtown area of his town that he grew up in. And he walked past a second-hand store. And wouldn't you know it, there in the window, he saw his boat. There it was. 
It was unmistakably his. So he went in and he said to the owner, that's my boat. And he walked very proudly and very, very confidently, snatched up the boat out of the window and began to leave the store. Of which the owner said, now excuse me, that's my boat. He said, I spot that boat from somebody. No, the boy said, that's my boat. I made it. And he turned it and showed him the little scratches where he had carved his initials and hammered them down inside before he varnished over it. And the man said, I'm sorry, buddy. If you want it, you have to buy it. The poor little boy didn't have any money. But instead of being discouraged and quitting, he went home and he got odd jobs and he worked hard and he saved all of his money. And finally, one day he had enough money and the boat was still there and he went in and he bought the little boat back from the owner of the secondhand store. And as he left the store, holding the boat close to him, the owner heard him saying, you're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. And second, you're my boat because I bought you. <laughs> That's redemption. That's redemption. (laughs) First, you're his because Christ made you. Second, you're his because he bought you on the cross. He paid the price to redeem you. So what does that mean practically? Church, listen, let go of your stress to God's care. Let go of your sins to Christ's cross. That's redemption. Is it any wonder that in Revelation chapter 5, the elders and the living creatures cease not to say, Worthy are thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation. And then in Romans chapter 3, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, Paul goes on to write, And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So men and women, listen to me this morning. Jesus' death frees believers from sins, guilt, condemnation, power, and penalty. And one day, even its presence. And so I want you to remember this. Thirdly, we are forgiven. It's not just that we are accepted and redeemed, we're forgiven. Look at verse 7b, from our trespasses. That sounds familiar because you talk about it all the time in the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's only natural that if redeemed, then we must be forgiven. Forgiven, though, here has a much broader scope than what you first read. You see, the first two out, great outcomes of redemption that Paul talks about, is there anything that fallen mankind craves more, needs more than forgiveness? We are living in an age, I think, of the heightenedness of anxiety and depression and stress than ever before. But when you actually talk to people about what causes them anxiety, what causes them stress, what causes them depression, often it is because they're either wounded by things done to them or they're ashamed of things they've done. And yet forgiveness says, you're, done, you're taken care of. Redemption says you're forgiven. 
Old and New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, it's filled with God's gracious acts of forgiveness. That's why we do our call to confession and our call to assurance. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That was in verse 3. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Oh. I don't know. I don't think I need to stand up and convince you or tell you about guilt and shame. It's everywhere. Everywhere. The very guilt that ran Adam and Eve into hiding is still causing human beings to hide today. And some of you, looking at me as I look at you, are doing the same thing. You're hiding. You're pretending. You're smiling on the outside dying on the inside, afraid to admit, afraid to talk candidly and openly about your fears, your failures, your hurts, your questions, your doubts. But that's why Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red, like crimson, they shall become like wool. Remember your redemption. When Jesus shed his blood, he carried your sin and mine as far as the east is from the west. Does that not sound familiar? I read it to you earlier. Once you are forgiven by God because of the redemption affected by Jesus Christ, it is truly once for all. Now, Now listen, Paul is telling the Christians here that they are forgiving, but make sure we know what it means. It's not some one-time thing. That's why we do what we do every Sunday. You are forgiven, you are being forgiven, and you will ultimately be forgiven. And too many Christians live under the weight of guilt as if God may change his mind or something. But listen to Micah when he writes on behalf of God and he says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Notice, God does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. That you will cast all our sin into the depth of the sea. That's why I love Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wish I could get Christians to live like that Monday to Saturday. And not just come to church on Sunday and act like it. Go live this week as someone who is not condemned and watch how that affects the way you battle with sin. John MacArthur writes, forgiveness in Jesus Christ is undeserved, but it is free and it is complete. So you might say, well then, Pastor Steve, does that mean I can be sinlessly perfect? And I would emphatically and simply say, no, because I know you. And the truth is, you know me. I was driving here today with Debbie. And we were running a little bit behind, and I had heard someone. I knew I had to practice and then sing and then preach and all that kind of stuff. And my voice often gets hoarse. It gets tired over the morning. And someone had told me that, believe it or not, you may not realize this, as singers, one of the best things to do for your vocal cords is to grease them up. So somebody told me, eat McDonald's french fries or something greasy. And I was like, man, that's all I needed to know. I mean, I have a reason to eat poorly. It's for my voice, right? So I had it in my head that I wanted to get... A bacon and egg McMuffin from McDonald's because there'd be bacon and a very buttery egg. 
but I'm running out of time. I got a cup of tea at Tim Hortons, and wouldn't you know it, the one time I need to be in a rush, they decide it's not rush day. So we wasted seven, eight minutes getting a cup of tea because the two people in front of me decided to get a buffet breakfast. (laughs) Now I'm going to preach about all of the glories of this and I'm sitting there and my temper is just starting to rage. And as I'm driving away, realizing I can't get my bacon and egger, and I said to Debbie, how weak and fragile am I? I just... I'm going to go tell people about remembering their redemption. And in a snapshot, I have forgotten mine. That I'm accepted. And I'm redeemed. And I'm forgiven. So, too many Christians live this way. Because of the flesh, we still sin. So we need cleansing. We need to remember. And that's why Paul teaches what he does in this passage. Remember what... Jesus would say to Peter in John chapter 13, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You see, that's when Jesus washed the feet of all the disciples and Peter goes and runs his mouth and says, wash all of me. And then Jesus says, no, listen, man, if I got to wash all of you, you're admitting you're not even one of mine. And so then he says, no, 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 don't wash anything. And then Jesus says, no, no, you still need your feet washed because you're not perfect, Peter, I am. And so we need this. And that's why John would write, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Paul in Ephesians 1 is telling us, because we are and have been forgiven, we can and must now come to Jesus regularly in confession and our need of fresh grace, new mercies, ongoing strength that will keep us focused on Jesus, keep you focused on what God has done for you, what he is doing for you. But wait, there's more. Because in verses 8 and 9, we're told that we are informed. Look at the verse, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. See, Jesus doesn't just forgive us. He equips us and enlightens us. That word wisdom in our passage means an understanding of things ultimately in Christ. When you are saved, when you are redeemed, your eyes are opened by God to see clearly what he is doing. And this is what the writer of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says. He says that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now why is that? Because it is written, what no eye hath seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things has God revealed to us through the Spirit. So you've now been informed. You don't know now battle your sin without an education that there's hope in battling your sin. You see, if you don't have redemption, why struggle? You see, that's the outcome. You remember back in, in, in Daniel when Belteshazzar is just denying God and he hears, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. You realize, right, all the partying that happened at George Street last night, that was their motto. Since I don't have tomorrow or I don't know if I got tomorrow and I can't make sense of the day, I'll spend what little money I have chasing after freedom because tomorrow I may not be here. I don't know about you, but now I look at that and I go, what a hopeless way to live. What a deceitful way to live. But I don't feel condescension. I feel pity, love. I want them to know there's a better way. You don't have to chase it. That's why Paul told the Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And you see, the neat thing is that all this has been lavished on us because we've been redeemed. And we've got the Holy Spirit's ability to know God. And God, we can speak to him in prayer. And we can hear to, from him through the word of God and be guided and filled by his spirit. And then finally, in verse 10, we are part of his plan. You're accepted and forgiven and redeemed. And you've got insight and wisdom because you're part of his plan. Look at the end of verse 10. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Paul started to worship God for his omniscience and his sovereignty and his power. And then he moved to the fact that we are included in this. That's why I'm not afraid of sovereignty. And so we see this in Ephesians. In fact, if you were to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you'll read a very famous verse, right? That we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I love that word workmanship. In the Greek, it's the Greek word poema, where we get our English word for poetry. So Paul basically says, listen, you are part of his plan. What does it mean? You're the poetry of God. Can you imagine when you go home, look in the mirror this afternoon and say, I'm a poem of God. I'm not a random mistake. I'm not a fluke. I'm not a tragic letdown. I'm the poetry of God. When God chose us before the foundation of the world, he included us in the master plan of the ages. You're not some random chance. You are here by design. God created you. Then in amazing grace, he included you in his plan. He found you when you weren't looking for him. He planned for you and he sent Jesus to redeem you. And you and I are God's gift to Jesus' obedience. And that's why I often pray, as a reward for the suffering of your son, would you save some? You are not a mistake. We might have made mistakes, but we are the poetry of God. And that's why Paul said in the Philippians, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize what a radically different message that is from the world's? You see, do you know how the world thinks about history and eternity? I started by reading the Stoic. Let me give you the French, French philosopher Andre Morris who said, the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I am convinced that no one has the slightest idea. I don't know about you, but again, that's a tragedy. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, Macbeth pessimistically declares that history is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Is this the world you want to chase? Is that what you want your outcome to be? What should ours be? Very quickly, let me give you this. Here's what I want you to take home. If number one, you are accepted, then stop trying to earn God's approval or anybody else's. You don't have to earn God's approval. He redeemed you. He came for you. He created you. He loves you. You will never do anything to make him love you more, and you'll never do anything to make him love you less. You don't have to earn his approval. You have it. Oh, that this week you would just bask in the glow of it. And here's the irony. That'll change the way you live. That'll give you hope to deal with your sin. You are his cherished son or daughter forever. John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends.
You are my friends, Jesus said, if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, notice, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You see, you read these verses, but you don't think about them. Number two, you are redeemed, so stop doubting the God who saved you. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound, right? You're redeemed, so stop doubting the God who saved you. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. My question is, are you singing of your redemption or acting like you're still a slave? One of my favorite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. If you haven't watched it, I really do encourage you to watch it. It's one of my favorite movies to watch. One of the poignant parts is after he has been rescued from that prison and he has found the treasure and he has unlimitless money and he's bought this massive can, uh, castle and Jacobed, his, uh, his servant, goes in to find him one morning and he opens these majestic doors to this massive bedroom. His bedroom is about the size of this room with this massive bed. And where is our count? But he's on the floor on a blanket sleeping. He's a rich man, free, and still acts like a slave. Too many Christians are doubting the God who saved them. And I want you to be free of that. Number three, since you're forgiven, then stop feeling guilty about your shortcomings. Now, I didn't say stop dealing with your shortcomings. I said stop feeling guilty. Never, and I mean never forget what God has done for you. The great pastor, Presbyterian pastor J.M. Boyce said, Do you realize that Christ, if you're a redeemer, and has actually shed his blood for you as a ransom, do you realize that your salvation has been bought at a tremendous price, at the price of nothing less than precious blood, and that the blood of Christ, the Holy One of God, do you realize that this Christ, who has thus shed his blood for you, is himself your God? So you deal with your shortcomings, But stop acting like you don't have them or you don't struggle with them. Number four, you are informed, so start acting like it. Stop acting like you don't have access to the answers to the questions you have. Do you know how many people will call me up? Pastor Steve, I don't know. And I go, have you read your Bible? No. Have you prayed? No. Well, duh. You have access. So go do it. Go do it. One man says, if God lavished so much value on us, we cannot devalue his efforts by ignoring him or the implications for life. Grace must lead us to the very place it does in this text, to gratitude that is both spoken and lived. For Christianity, listen to me, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. So now, why do you live a holy life? Not to earn God's favor, but because you already have it. And those of you that are married, I'm looking down at Dave and Leanne. This is their last Sunday as a, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. Um, <laughs> this is her last Sunday as a single lady and his last Sunday as a single man. On Saturday coming, they will get together and get married in a chapel. Going to the chapel. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. But you know what? I can tell Dave and Leanne, and I have told them, that Debbie and I were married 27 years just last week. 
And my wife knows the difference between when I am loyal because I'm obligated to be and when I'm loyal because I love to be. And when I only am loyal to Debbie because I'm obligated to be, then I can tell you marriage can get very, very hard. But when I think about all that Debbie has done for me, all that she has done in my life, this profound sense of love wells up from my belly right up into my chest and my head and my heart, and it drives me to be all I can be for her. If you will remember your redemption, you will be holy. Not because you have to be, but because you want to be. But you have to rehearse all of these things. And finally, since you are part of God's plan, start thanking Him for it and living it out. When was the last time you thanked God for your salvation? Let that be what motivates us more than anything. So church, Christians, remember your redemption. Friend and visitor, if you don't know Jesus, then know him. Come and let us reason together. Because Jesus, your redeemer friend, who created you and lived and died for you and rose again for you. And this ends the sermon. And may God's Holy Spirit speak to you and teach you and guide you in how to respond this day. Let's pray. Father God, I pray again that my friends and my family, my wife and my daughter, and my friends that make up this church and all of our visitors will hear a much better sermon than I have preached. But I pray pray that we will all remember our redemption. And Lord, as we sing our last song together that you are worthy, as we hear about ways that we can rejoice this week and serve you this week, and as we go, and I pray that many of us can stay and enjoy a time of lemonade and just chatting with each other, maybe talking about ways to remember our redemption. Or for those that have to rush into the day or to a lunch date or work or schedules, Lord, whatever today and this week holds for us, would we remember our redemption? Lord, that we are accepted and redeemed and forgiven and informed and part of your plan, that that will change me and us And would you save people in the city because of it as a reward for the suffering of your son. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.